Welcome to our 22nd lesson in the book of Revelation. I'm entitled to Thyatira, the church's self-destruction. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Let me read them now. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am. I search the mind and the heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. Now this lesson is building upon, obviously, the previous lesson, lessons in Thyatira, in which we discuss the Jezebel effect. But the Jezebel effect itself is built upon the Balaam effect from Pergamon. So if you're jumping in the middle of this, you need to go back and listen to the other lessons dealing with the churches, at least. So you're brought up to speed and and you're not just left in the dark here as to what is he babbling about. Essentially, the Balaam effect remakes society from the bottom up, attacking the family, from infiltrating within the family, and, and then training the children to your way of thinking. This is done through marrying wives who are unbelievers, because women are the ones who raise the children historically, and the thus give children their values. It's it's a bottom-up effect. But it can't work alone. The Jezebel effect, as we discussed, gives legal protection and societal structures for a top-down effect to legitimize what is already going on at the family level. And this synergistic Coordination remakes society, and those who oppose it appear unreasonable and dangerous. But the Balaam effect alone produces revolutions that fail. French Revolution, Marcuse's uh, Popular Front, socialistic revolutions of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they all died out because it was the Balaam effect alone. But the Jezebel effect alone also fails, as demonstrated by the Soviet and communist Chinese revolutions. It, it, um, force alone cannot affect the change. The people have to want the change. It takes both. And so we see this coming together in American, in American history with the American Revolution, later on the American Lincoln's War, miscalled Civil War. But if you look at the graphic following in the handout, you see that both of these bring their lines of control to bear on you. Because it is about you. It's not about just controlling you. It's about hiding truth from you so that you no longer are exposed to the gospel.
So Christ is telling the churches, because it's about the churches. The prophets primarily dealt with the Jews because they were God's people. And the only time they dealt with the Gentile nations is when they impacted, positively or negatively, usually negatively, with the Jews. Remember, for these people, their Bible is our Old Testament. When they talked out of the Bible, they talked out of the Old Testament. So that's where these metaphors are coming from. These examples focusing their attention because Satan's methodology does not change. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 11. It's always the same. And so, continuing on in the vein of this metaphor, Christ is demonstrating his mercy and long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, 9. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he wants. He wants you, the Christian, who have gone wayward, as we all do, to repent, to return to come back to him. Remember, these letters to the churches are not to the lost. They're not to the citizens of Thyatira. They're not to the pagans. They are to believers in the church who are being seduced by these false teachers, by the spiritually immature that have been captured and thus are really impotent for these changes percolating throughout the churches. Because remember, Satan has one goal. That's to not go to the lake of fire. His goal is no more complicated than that. And he's bringing everything to bear to prove that God is an unjust judge. Thus, his judgment against him, Satan, is unjust also and cannot stand. And thus... Satan does not have to go to the lake of fire. It's no more complicated than that. Everything else flows from that. Everything. So his ultimate goal is not to control you. That's not his end goal. That's his methodology on his way to prove that God is unjust. Theophany. Or theodicy, rather. So that he doesn't have to go to, to the lake fire. He care less about you. You're just a means to his end. But we, sinners, because we're born sinners, agree with it. Because if he gets off, we get off. So we're all in. Because remember Romans 1, 18 through 28 is the backdrop. We are all ungodly. We are all asabea. We are all sinners. Guilty. And thus already consigned to go to the lake of fire. You don't do anything to go there. The very fact you were conceived in sin, Psalm 51, 5 places you there. The issue is not whether you go to hell. The issue is whether you get out of there. 
We seem to, we bought into this delusion that we're really in a neutral ground on the sidelines. And if I, I, I do or say the wrong thing, oh, I go to hell. But if I don't do or say the wrong thing, gee, I'm okay. No, that's how it works. You, but the moment of conception are already consigned. The point is for you to get unconsigned. Well, here we are in the church because these letters are addressed to the churches. So Christ, not willing that any should perish, he says, I will give her, meaning Jezebel adherents, those who follow this methodology, those who have succumbed to this spiritually immoral practice doctrines. And trust me, it's not an ancient thing. It happens today. But not in the way you think, as you'll see when we go through this. Well, this time he's talking about is not indicative. It's not a specific moment. If you repent tomorrow, if you do the dishes at night, tonight at five, that's indicative. But if you say, well, I'll do the dishes later today, that's subjunctive. I'll get to it in a period. It's a little nonspecific, but I will get to it. Well, here it's Oris subjunctive. Now, the beautiful thing about Oris is it involves, depending on the context, and in this case being hooked to the subjunctive, it involves past, present, and future. Simultaneously. Something that doesn't happen in the English much. And so the decision was made in the past, past tense, Oris, that Christ will give you space to repent. You in your present time are being given this space to repent. And should you repent, then you will not suffer the judgment. Now, the judgment will be, if you're saved, standing before him, giving an account at the Bema seat and suffering loss. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and also 1 Corinthians 3. Here where we stand before him and have to give an account. And those things that we do for Christ are jewels, precious stones that survive the test of his blazing eyes, judgment by fire, or wood, hay, and stubble, which means that it was wrong and it's burned up. But we ourselves do not lose our salvation. That is where we're at. Now, we see this at work in the Old Testament in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3, where Christ tells Habakkuk to write it down, make it plain so that those who run can read it. It will not come. It may not come when you expect it to, but it is coming. It will not delay. It will come at its appointed time. So 
this runs through prophetic language and Revelation being a prophetic book, we're going to encounter this prophetic sense of time a lot. So he's giving the Jezebel adherents this time, this space to repent of their error and return to him. Let's turn to Hebrews 10, 37 through 39, where he says, For yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. A sense of time subjunctive again. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, he's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 26. But we, we who are faithful, we who are being matured, we who have repented of our sin, if we have fallen into this particular sin, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, if you do not repent and you are saved, Christ takes you home, lest you cause others to fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul warns people that they take the Lord's Supper unworthily, get drunk. Then they can be made sick as part of the Hagen's process, or they can just be taken home. And then they'll have to give an account anyway of this. But it also reveals the lost among you, those who refuse to repent. They will suffer loss. In other words, they who are already consigned to the lake of fire will still go there. They'll just make a detour to the white throne judgment to confirm that. So what's happening here? is Christ says, I will throw her onto a bed. You want to commit immorality. Now, of course, he's speaking here of spiritual immorality, but he's using physical immorality terms to define it for us. That's, we have to have concrete terms so that we can visualize it. By visualize, I mean grasp it. We're not spiritual beings per se, like the angels, like the Father. Though we have a spiritual component to us, we've never been there. We have no physical senses to sense it, to understand it. So we have to make these metaphoric associations with concrete actions and objects. We call this abstract thinking. You grow into that in your teen years and on into your adults if you mature as you should. But part of the Hagizo process is Christ you want, gives you up. He says, you want to do this? I'm going to set warning signs. You're going to have guilt. You're going to have increased fear. But if you're mine and you still go off into this, fine. Have your fill. It will either drive you back to me or it will show that you are lost. Now to the lost, yes, they will still, yeah, you want to go do this? Go do this. Have a great time. Because in Romans 1, 18 through 28, Christ says, I give them up three times. It's complete. 
He's not there to beat the lost up. That's, that's not what's happening. There will be an accountability for everyone, obviously. But he, he's not beating them up on the way there. They can build that world they want without him so that they can discover, though they deny it while they're discovering it, that it is deg degrading and violent and not at all the peace that Christ has promised to those who love him. So... Christ allows you to fill your sin to the brim that you can become, if you're saved, wretchedly vomiting, sick of it. And you turn to him in repentance. Now, if you're just cruising along, having a good time, how do you know you're of Christ? You're in sin and nothing's happening and everything's all right. How do you know you're saved? Remember, God only brings us against those he's called out. In the Old Testament, it was Judah and Israel. Israel, the united monarchy, and, and then Judah and Israel, the divided monarchies. In the New Testament, it's Christians, churches. So he says, I'm going to throw the Jezebelites into bed to gorge on their immorality. Now, Proverbs 30, 12. Let's go there. And also, later on in that same chapter, here in 32, he says, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. How does Christ show you that you're filthy? He doesn't mean filthy with dirt. He means covered in your own excrement. You stink. You're unclean. You're soiled. And down in verse 15, 16 of the same chapter, he says, a leech has two daughters who cry out, give me, give me, give me more. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land with water, and the fire. Never says enough. And neither does sin. Your sin only wants more sin. Only. It is never satisfied. So those they open themselves up to, who come in unto them, these will have great tribulation. So those believers and unbelievers who fall into the Jezebel's immoral, spiritual immoral trap will not find peace. Instead, they will find great guilt, great fear, great perplexity, degradation, violence, 
They will never be happy. They will never have enough. They will always want more. This is sin's consequences. This is part of the Hayezo process. We're going to see this in the Great Tribulation. And these also hell. But understanding sin's consequences through the Hagezo process and having that tribulation in your life are there to prevent you from going to hell, to get you out of there. Remember, you cannot lose your salvation, but that doesn't mean you're not going to enjoy eternity future. Thinking how much you missed. Now, the children of the Jezebel's lights, their disciples, they only produce lost people. You can say, well, I'm part of the church, and, and, and I've fallen into this, this philosophy that I think is better than just the Bible alone. It's spiritual. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it combines the best of the, of the man's philosophy and God's spiritual stuff, and Jesus loves everybody. And, and you're going to go ahead and take this bastardized gospel out, and you'll have many adherents. Think of Charles Finney, but they're not saved. Not in Christ's eyes. Matthew 7, they'll be standing before him saying, Lord, Lord. You're going to say, no, not so fast. I never knew you. Almost everyone Charles Finney claimed got saved or came forward at his revivals. Remember, the modern evangelical movement is based on him vast majority of them fell away. Never saved. Same thing today. They'll only find the second death. Now, because Jezebel is an Old Testament metaphor, is there an Old Testament pattern? We've seen patterns here in Scripture, but we're seeing patterns play out in Revelation already. And yes, there is a repeating pattern in which God speaks in plain and at times evolved words to show his people how disgusting their choices are to them and to him. Now, before Je Jezebel, and we looked her in the last lesson that was in 1 Kings, there was generalized holotry anyway amongst the Hebrews. Now, idolatry is expected of the lost. That is just the basic definition of being lost is being ensnared in an idolatry, even today. Now, remember, the baseline idolatry is always, 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 Covetousness. Colossians 3.5. It's the basis of all idolatry. It's the basis of all sin. I want. 
and it finds expression through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. If we go back and look at the graphics and, and the lessons I did in Exodus, especially around Exodus 17, around the, the 10 words, you'll see that there are two pyramids with an inverted pyramid of Christ between the two. The first pyramid has to deal with relationship to God and ends with, at the base of it, obey your parents. Because through them, you learn to think. You learn your values. You learn, hopefully, what's right, but you learn your values, their values. But for God's people, it should be informed out of the scriptures. But the other ones, the words having to deal with relations between people, it starts off with don't murder, but it ends in do not covet, the base of all sin. It's not the least of all sin. It's the greatest that drives all sin. And it's driving it here. So the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, lived in Egypt and adopted Egyptian idolatry, probably after Joseph died. And they never gave it up. But they enslaved themselves to Satan. Let's turn to Ezekiel 20, starting in verse 6. And uh, On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. Every one of you, do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, they already had them. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away their detestable things their eyes feasted on. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then all the way down to verse 32 God says, you know, I was going to wipe them out, but I decided not to. And I was going to wipe them out, but I spared them. Then in verse 18, I said to their children in the wilderness, this is the book of Numbers, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and carefully follow the law. The moral law, the ten words. And keep my Sabbaths holy to be a sign between you and me that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. But they rebelled. They refused to. It's down in verse 28. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then whenever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, 
There they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Will you defile yourselves at the manner of your fathers that go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with your idols to this day? And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. So this infected the Hebrews, and they never got rid of it. Let's go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 23. We'll be spending some time in 23. Starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. Their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. And so they adopted, they were seduced by the culture of Egypt. They weren't the first, probably, but they definitely weren't the last because so were the Ptolemies, the Greeks, who took over Egypt after Alexander died, were seduced and adopted Egyptian dress and Egyptian customs and Egyptian this and that. Those, they still spoke Greek. Cleopatra was a Ptolemy. She was a Greek pretending she was an Egyptian. But God planted the Hebrews in the Goshen area, the Delta area. They grew rich. It was the gateway to Egypt's interior. And they adopted the Egyptian idolatry and their practices without being Egyptian. And though they appeared Egyptian, they were foreigners. And actually, this is brought out in Exodus 1, 6 through 14. When a dynasty arose that did not pay homage to Joseph, therefore didn't respect these people and looked upon them as foreigners, which they were, growing rich, growing prosperous, practicing idolatry, pretending they were Egyptians, but were not and could not be trusted because they were invaded. They had no assurances that the Hebrews wouldn't join the invaders. They were the gateway. They were the gatekeepers. Better to eliminate that threat now. And God allowed it because they had already enslaved themselves to Egyptian idols. These were innocent people that just got rounded up one day and, and, and carted off to the slave mines. They had already enslaved themselves inwardly, spiritually, played the whore t- to their God. Therefore, God let them come under those that they sought to control because as they were rich, They had the best of the best of the land. 
They were probably also meddling in Egyptian politics and Egyptian commerce and and no wonder they were not trusted. But as slave for the harlotry, they called out to God, who in his long suffering and mercy sent Moses. Now this is a pattern we see throughout Judges. In that they call out. Exodus two, twenty-three through twenty-five. But after they were brought out of Egypt by God, when Pharaoh let them go, because God is not the author of rebellion, when faced with testing, they immediately condemned God and returned to idolatry. That golden calf event in Exodus 32 just didn't come out of the sky. They never let it go. I mean, Moses was gone for a month up in the mountains. Oh, we're abandoned. I guess we better follow our own God because this guy bailed on us. And he wasn't that trustworthy anyway. Kept running out of water, kept running out of food. We kept... It's the pattern throughout the entire Old Testament. And now we're seeing it play out in the churches. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 20. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't follow their path. But of course we do, because sin. Sin never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, let us go back to... Ezekiel 23. Like I said, we're going to camp out there probably for most of the rest of the lesson. God expressly warned Judah that she ignored the example of Israel, the northern kingdom, which was irreversibly exiled for idolatry. And she started the idolatry during the period of the judges with the tribe of Dan in the very north, installing calf worship and using Moses' grandson to establish their own unique priesthood. And later, when the kingdom split from Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Jeroboam instituted this calf worship throughout the northern kingdom so his people would not go to Jerusalem during the three festival days each year and thus want to join back up and then eliminate him. So security, thinking of himself, thinking of 
keeping his dynasty intact. It's always about security. And Jezebel was just playing into this. She was just changing the focus of it from the Egyptian calf worship to the Baal bull worship of fertility, which sex acts with temple prostitutes, both male and female, for both male and female worshipers, was not only expected, it was part of the worship. So the spiritual immorality mirrored by physical immorality in actual practice here. So God compared Judah's idolatry, their spiritual immorality to harlotry, to sex as the metaphor in action. I, we're not going to talk about this much in this lesson, but the man-woman relationship framework that man spoke about in Genesis chapter 2 when presented with woman shows this intimacy between man and woman to become one, which mirrored man's intimacy with Christ already present because it had not been marred by sin. And this becomes the framework for Christ the he and Hebrews. And we see this throughout Ezekiel, throughout the prophets, where the Jews were the bride of Christ, you know, the wife of Christ. He had betrothed her to himself in the wilderness and, and it goes to, to great lengths, beautiful lengths describing this. But they didn't want that. They wanted something else. But this is also the framework of the relationship between Christ, the church, and the bride. And violation of this intimacy is immorality. So the physical immorality violates the marital relationship, which is just a metaphor for the relationship you should be having with Christ through salvation. But if you're saved and have this and you violate this, and we do, it is the same in terms as if you went out and were immoral on your wife or your husband. And it's supposed to be a far more intimate relationship. It is this immorality. And you can see if you're following along in handouts, the vast number of verses, and it doesn't even cover it, all the verses that are there just to let us know how seriously God takes us. 
fact, one of the charges he makes against the Jews in the book of Malachi, the last word he says to them before Christ talks to them directly and they string him up, is do not violate the wife of your youth. Do not throw her away. Now, God is going to be using some blunt terms here to show his disgust by their harlotry. Blunt terms. Now, we're going to use the terms as delicately as possible not to offend our youthful hearers, but we need to be aware of how debasing this is because it makes us animals. Sin makes us animals. Point you to Psalm 73. When the believer is about ready to fall away, he was doubting, he was struggling. He said, I went into the sanctuary and then I understood. I had almost become a brute beast, a bull out in the field, staring blankly, chewing my cud, poop when I need to poop, pee when I need to pee, eat when I was hungry, copulate when I was had the need. Just a beast, driven, 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 driven. That's God's picture of sinners. Driven, 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 driven by their loss. They are never in control. So he's using these same terminologies. And so he gives the name Ahola to Israel, the northern kingdom. And it means her own tent. See, Israel refused God's tabernacle. Now, tabernacle is just a fancy English word for tent. Because the ark, which is the quintessential central artifact pointing toward Christ's sacrifice on the starros for their sin was contained in this tent. And it moved when they moved. When the building it was fixed so they were floated, they were just stuck on one spot. Otherwise he'd just send them to Jerusalem, build the temple and that'd be it. No, it moved where they moved, where he directed them to move. Your faith moves with you. It grows with you, in you, around you, because God is leading you. And, and his, his faith and his comfort and his care over you are surrounding you. It is your tent. But Israel didn't want God's tent. She wanted her own tent. Remember Jeroboam, the calf in Bethel, the house of God, and, and the one in, up in Dan, and then Jezebel and her Baal bull worship, fertility and God of the rains. She left that tent. She wanted her own tent. And she built her own calf, as we just discussed, and as we covered in our last lesson. And yet, she ended up with no tent. And God says, Israel, 
had less guilt than Judah. You believe that? Because Judah, the southern kingdom, he named Aholibah, meaning the tent in her. It's not that she has her own tent. The tent is in her. Judah is the worst offender who ignored the warning of Israel and of her own coming fate of the Babylonian captivity. She enticed the Chaldeans by her treasures via a godly king, Hezekiah, whose love became cold. You read all about it in Isaiah 38 and 39. And at the end of that, when Isaiah told him, you should not have done this, you know what Hezekiah said? Oh, well, I'll have peace in my time. He didn't care. That's what happens to believers who grow cold. They don't care. As Peter said, it's like a dog returning to his own vomit or a pig to its own mire. When you have the faith, but you fall. And you don't care. You had better, but you don't care. You've changed temporal security for eternal security. Now, like I said, you don't lose your salvation. That doesn't mean you're going to have a happy time. So let's read a few, a little bit of the passage here. Starting in verse 4, Ezekiel 23. Ahola was the name of the elder, Aholaba, the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria, and Aholaba is Jerusalem. Ahola played the whore while she was mine and lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, all of them desirable young men riding on horses, and she bestowed her whoring on them. Choice men of Assyria, all of them, she defiled herself with her idols of everyone after whom she lusted and didn't give her whoring out. Her whoring that began in Egypt. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted and covered her nakedness. They seized her sons and daughters. And as for her, they killed her with the sword. She became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. Now, as we know, the hierarchy of the ten tribes was taken off into exile and never brought back. It was never made a province. It never became anything more than uh, another province of the empire. In fact, they brought pagans in and, and even found priests, not priests of God to go there, but priests of the bulls to go there because the wild animals were 
rampaging in the basically unkept land. But the Jews themselves, the majority of the ten tribes, stayed there. They weren't lost. In the fact that they were all deported en masse and all of the Jews were gone and, and thus they were dispersed and the other ten tribes in North America or some other such myth that you want to trace down, those are all lies. But she was not brought back. She remained Samaria. And we see how Christ confronted the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, saying, yeah, you built your belief, you tried to get back to God, but you never got back there much. Because you still worship on this Mount Gerizim when you shouldn't be going to Zion. You never really completely came back. However, there is salvation for individuals. And he did. Yet, Aholabah did the same thing. And she saw that her sister was defiled. She carried her whoring further. Saw men portrayed on the walls, the images of the Chaldeans in red, wearing belts on their waist, flowing turbans, having the appearance of officers, the likeness of Babylonians. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love. Remember Hezekiah there? That's exactly who they're talking about. And they defiled her with her whoring lust. And after she was defiled by him, she turned from them in disgust. When she carried on her whoring openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in dis- disgust from her. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her lovers there. So, why did Israel Judah reject Christ? The answer is contained in the wilderness. The Hebrews prized physical, worldly security above spiritual, future security and railed against God when physical security appeared threatened. We see it at the Rock of Meribah in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. We see it again. In Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13, by their children. They did not follow Abraham, who desired a city to come. That's what Abraham did. He desired that city to come, but they did not want that. They did not want that at all. They wanted it now. And when it was threatened now, they were ready to throw God out because they could only see now. And Judah sought strong, Gentile, idolatrous nation for security. And if you weren't strong enough for her, she would throw you away to find another. 
So there's something implied here that we're going to talk about. Well, remember that metaphor of animals? If you turn to Ezekiel 20, 3, 20, chapter 23, verse 20, and said that Aholabah, Judah, lusted after her lover there, whose members, meaning their penises, were like those of donkeys. And their issue, their ejaculate, was like that of horses, like rivers. Plentiful. That's why Judah, Olabah, her tent is in her. She was taking them in. For her size mattered. This is how disgusting their behavior was to God. This is how disgusting our behavior is to Christ when we follow our sin. We become like dumb brute beasts in Psalms 73. And he gives us space to repent. You see, Judah, Aholibah, was playing the whore for control. See, the reason the two-thirds approximately, of the captives stayed in Babylon is because they made homes for themselves, they were rich there, they were well off there, and they were uh, initiating, integrating themselves into the controls aspect, into the palace. We see this in the book of Esther in Persia. They wanted to control from the inside. That's the secret to the book of Esther. Not one prayer is mentioned there. It's all about what they're doing. And they're seeking control. Behind the throne. Not the throne, behind the throne. That's what they want. To control and enslave the Gentiles. They write it all out in their Talmud, the Mishnah, the Midrash. It's right there. When Luther got saved and he learned Hebrew and he read this, his compassion for the Jews turned to hate. Didn't work well a couple centuries later for the Jews or the Germans, but he read the truth of it. This is what they do. And guess what? Just like the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrews that were growing richer and trying to pretend they were them and probably integrating themselves into their control structures, they enslaved them. The Babylonians captured them. The Assyrians captured Israel, and Israel never came back. The Gentiles turn on and destroy those who sought to enslave them. It's that Egyptian pattern. And this pattern 
persisted throughout the Old Testament, culminating in condemning Christ for Roman security and hopes of controlling Pilate. How did that work for him? Uh, Jerusalem destroyed in A.D. 70. So I guess it didn't work out too well for them. And it's also a pattern we're going to see in Revelation, where the Babylonian whore, who are the false Jews, are destroyed by Antichrist when no longer useful. Revelation 17. So this is the pattern that we come up with. Immorality's broad path. Israel, Judah, the church, and you, because it works at your level also. So we see on the right, the graphing. It begins with God's call from the world. So already we're not talking about the lost. We're only talking about the saved. They're brought into God's tent. They're brought into God's gospel. In the Old Testament, that was the law of the ten words. Ten words are still in effect today, but not as principles we keep but as a measure of how well we are maturing in Christ so that we stay fixed to the Bible, we stay fixed to Christ. But God's tent over us, his love over us. The Balaam-Jezebel effect, it seeks to facilitate transition from God's tent to the world's tent. You're looking for security because you don't want God's security because we want now security. We don't want persecution now. We don't want to starve now. We don't want to suffer now. We don't want to do without now. We want what we want when we want it. Why? Animals. Sinners. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I want what I want when I want it. It drives the vast majority of people. And so we migrate from God's tent to the world's tent. We follow the the delusion. We look for security based on covetousness, based on loss, driven. And you know what? We end up with no tent. Mark that. The lost end up with no tent. The truly saved are driven back to God's tent. And those who are taken out of the world prematurely, early in God's judgment, are still driven back to God's tent because God doesn't let you go. God is more faithful than we are. But those children produce, those disciples that are produced, they have no tent. The Assyrians turned on Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah, the Babylonians turned on her. The Persians let her go back, but she remained a province. And the Romans kept her enslaved. And now today she's enslaved by the Zionists, so she's not even God's land. 
It's not even God's country. It's not even God's nation. It's not the nation spoken of in the scripture where God will call them out. He has not called them out yet. That is not the nation. If you have been taught that, you have been taught incorrectly. The world uses you for their gain. And then when you're no longer needed, they turn on you. No security. Then you have the judgment. The saved who repent are rescued, though in fecal stained garments, in the scent of hell's stench of brimstone on them. The Bible speaks in very plain, brutal language for those who don't understand anything else, which seems to be the common language of the day today. Christ is the I am. The churches have and will allow the Jezebel effect into their midst, training now worldly security for later eternal security. The Jerusalem to come. He is the I am. He sees your heart and mind without ambiguity. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outside. God on the inside. The Christians trade transitory security for eternal security. We do it all the time. I'm going to make car payment. My children are starving. I'm going to lose the house. I don't have a job. And I'm not saying these aren't real concerns. They absolutely are real concerns. And the world is going to take everything away from you. The world is going to trod you underfoot. And the world is going to persecute you. And prosecute you. Expect it. Don't think it unusual when some fiery trial comes upon you, Peter wrote. It's happening. People are being slaughtered around the world for just carrying the label of Christian. So why should we play the harlot with Christ, not remaining chaste, waiting for the wedding to come? Revelations 21, 1 through 4. This is pattern of spiritual, physical immorality that's extent, even in today's LGBTQAI plus world. Critical theory. The churches, denominations, the believers succumb to idolatry, chasing the changing winds of Satan's delusional doctrines. Well, the question you have to ask yourself is, to whom are you joined? To whom are you joined? And why? What do you hope? Are you standing there at the rock of Meribah whining that you go, you don't have water? And if you are, so will your children later, just like in Numbers. Standing at the rock, Hating God because they're thirsty. Hating God because you're thirsty. The eternal God who took on flesh came down, tortured, and died for you. And you're throwing him off because you're thirsty. Now, 
If that sounds like it doesn't make a lot of sense, that condemns every single one of us. Because it's true. This is the reality that Christ is warning us about in these church letters. Why churches fail. Why believers fall away. We are lured back by the siren call and the delusion of sin. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12. And Christ will not let his people go, no matter how much we play the harlot. He will not let us go. And he will be given his white robes. Beloved, let us think clearly what the scriptures are teaching. Thank you.